Hey, Church of the Beloved. Uh, on Sunday, December 6th, the location we broadcast from, uh, our live stream, had had some major internet issues, which resulted in the full service not being broadcast. I'm thankful that you were able to enjoy uh, the Kang family's reading of scripture and the lighting of the Advent candle, but the sermon uh, and communion, it wasn't included. Uh, so because we didn't want our beloved family to miss out on either, I decided that it would, I would at least re-record those two portions and make it available on our YouTube channel. So as we said yesterday at the end of the sermon, we're still going to participate in communion together, the family. So will you please have those elements ready? I want to start with prayer. Will you pray with me? God, you are the creator and you are the sustainer of all things. We put our faith, our hope, and our trust in your perfect plan. And though things may not always go as we plan, they go out as you do. So use this time for your glory, God. In your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So, uh, I used to travel a lot for work. Um, nearly 20 years, I would have to regularly add pages to my passport because I spent so much time outside the U.S. than inside. In other words, my passport was three times thicker than uh, my wife Suzette's. And one of the places I would travel to on a pretty regular basis was India, and very specifically Bangalore, or known as Bengaluru, which is the capital of Karnataka. And I'll tell you, this is one of the most spiritual places I've ever had the privilege to spend time in. Uh, I, I stayed in an area where I would have a, a Hindu temple, a Muslim mosque, and a Catholic church, all situated within walking distance of me. And, and I would be able to simultaneously smell the incense and, and hear the call to prayer and listen to church bells ring. Kind of cool. Now, Bangalore, and I think a lot of India, it's a pretty spiritual place. Uh, it's a place where talking about spiritual things is it's just a part of culture, their day-to-day. -day. Now, here in Chicago, if you pick up I pick up the Tribune, uh, I, I will grab either the comic section or the real estate section. But in Bangalore, when I would pick up a local newspaper, I would pick up the politics section and the spirituality section. So it made sense. It was very easy for me every once in a while to ask folks, who do you think God is? And the variety of answers that I would get was astounding. It wasn't surprising, though, in its diversity. I'm not going to go into the details of all the different descriptions of God that I would hear, but there was one common thread in the majority of answers I, I get. And it was this. An individual's experience typically defined their theological stance. In, in other words, feelings define faith. And the mix of experiences, it resulted in a huge range of descriptions of who God is. And I'll say, because of this variety, because of this mix of responses and definitions of God, I, I'm going to suggest this, that experience and feelings alone, which are absolutely essential, they're important in the process of knowing who God is. They, they cannot be the only, these cannot be the final source for knowing who God is. We need an absolute, we need a final arbiter of truth that we can lean on in our understanding of who God is. And I'll tell you that for Christians, it's this book, it's this Bible. So we're going to be spending the next three weeks looking at scripture to gain a better understanding uh, of who God is, who it is that we are waiting for during this Advent season. 
Now, before we get into scripture, I, I want to read to you from Church of the Beloved's Statement of Faith. It's, it's one of the foundational beliefs we proclaim as a church. And it simply says this, that the church believes in the one triune God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are co-eternal in being, co-equal in power, and having the same attributes and perfections. So what, what does that mean? What, what is a triune God? And what I want to do is start by talking about what a triune God is not. Because there have been a lot of analogies over the years that have sprouted out, each with very good intentions, each wanting to make a very difficult idea more approachable and understandable. Uh, let me give an example. St. Patrick of Ireland, he famously picked up a three-leaf clover, and he would use it to talk about uh, how this one plant had three parts, three leaves, three in one, just like God. And for the scientists that are out there, you are probably familiar with, I believe, what's called the triple point of water, when water is simultaneously solid, liquid, and gas. And this has often been used to describe the three modes of, of God. Or, or maybe you've heard the analogy of the three persons of the Trinity being like the different roles an individual might play, you know, like a person who is a mother and a daughter and a doctor. Ultimately, in spite of their good intentions, all of these analogies are inadequate and wrong. And don't get me wrong, I don't blame the originators of these ingenious analogies. They were trying to simplify a terribly complex concept, but each of them were fall short. The problem with the three-leaf clover analogy, it makes it sound like uh, the attributes of God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are separate from each other, distinct and not shared, like three petals. But you see, the Father has all of God's attributes, as does the Son, as does the Holy Spirit. The three are distinct, but yet all three have all the attributes and characteristics of God. All three are fully God. When you look at the triple point of water um, as a metaphor to explain our triune God, it is a similar problem as a three-leaf clover because the metaphor has distinctions or attributes like the wetness of, of liquid water and, and the coldness or hardness of ice. It has these distinctions to the three. Again, though, all of God's distinctions and attributions apply to all three beings. God's love, His grace, His mercy, His all-knowingness, all these attributes and characteristics are true of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you consider the one person with different roles analogy, that one feels almost right because it does point to this idea of looking at one God from different points of view, different angles. In this scenario, each one is fully God, right? But what this analogy doesn't do is provide a means by which each role or each person of the Trinity is truly distinct. They, they're one, but in this scenario, they're not three. You see, the, the triune God is the perfect communion that has and will always exist. See, three beings, perfect and fully alike in all aspects, yet relationally different. 
So the only difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is in how they relate to one another. They, they are one, yet three. Our statement of faith has it right. They, they are co-eternal in being, co-equal in power, and having the same attributes and perfections. The difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is in how they relate to one another. That's it. Now, I will admit that the word Trinity or triune is not found in the Bible. But the idea of the word that led to the introduction of this vocabulary into the Christian vernacular, the intent of the global church in using the term Trinity or, or triune God, it is to provide a shorthand, a simple term that points to a foundational concept of our faith. I want to spend time looking at where this idea for the Trinity comes from in our final arbiter of truth from the Bible. And I'm not going to go and look at all the verses that point to it, but I just want to point out and highlight a few. You see from the very start of this gospel, of this book, this story, you see the seeds of this three-in-oneness being planted. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Uh, I'll say some have tried to interpret the term our to be like the royal we, um, like a queen saying, we're pleased to meet you. But this idea of a royal we did not exist in ancient Hebrew text. There's no royal we anywhere in the Old Testament. Even considering the Exodus series we just finished, Pharaoh never referred to himself as, as we. It was always me, I. And it's, this is not a reference to the angels. God's not talking to his heavenly host. No, they weren't part of the creation process. So it's not them. So from the very beginning, we see the seeds of this, this multiplicity of Yahweh being planted. We see it in the first half of Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. He says, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, the first half of that says, And I heard the voice of the Lord uh, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now this passage, God speaks to both his oneness when he says, Whom shall I send? And his manyness when he asks, Who will go for us? So throughout scripture, you'll see that God is absolutely singular, while at the same time, multiple. There's one of my favorite passages from the Bible. It's called the Shema, which means here in Hebrew. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And it says there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, also reads this. It says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God, there is no Elohim. Now, the Old Testament does not ignore the concept of God being many persons. Those seeds are absolutely being planted there. But a large part of the Old Testament's focus is on God's oneness. And, and if you consider the context of the original readers of the Old Testament, this this would make sense. It would have been an essential lesson to focus on because here were the, the Hebrews, the Israelites. They're surrounded by polytheistic cultures, people groups who worship anything and everything as lowercase g, gods. 
So pointing out that God's chosen and holy nation of royal priests would, to, would need to stand out by acknowledging that there's only one God and he is Yahweh. That had to be the emphasis. But once that was established, the New Testament now has the liberty to start addressing the nuance of God's uniqueness. And it introduces more details regarding the distinctiveness of three persons, the three persons of God. I, I, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It was a passage that was read earlier by Grace. And you, you see the introduction of the threeness of God there. Verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from water, the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We have the three members of the Trinity, each performing very distinct activities, each unique in how they interact and relate to one another. The Father is speaking from heaven, the Son is being baptized, and the Spirit is descending. And then you turn to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 19, and you see these three distinct persons are one God. Matthew 28, 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's Jesus. He's giving instructions to his disciples to go and make more disciples and to do that in his Father's name. Now, Jesus had been calling God his father throughout his earthly ministry. So the disciples, they would have immediately understood what God, what Christ is saying. He's, Jesus is saying, okay, yeah, I get it. I'll go now make disciples in the name of our God, in the name of Yahweh. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, Jesus is now putting himself the son. And he's putting the Holy Spirit on the same plane, on the same level as God, the father. So in this statement from Christ, you see that Jesus is proclaiming that not only is he the son of God, he is God. And not only is the Holy Spirit unique, he is God. So what is the Trinity? What, what, do, what do Christians mean when we say that we believe in a triune God? And I admit that this question, especially as I was diving into it, it does make your head spin and just thinking, what? Because it is so beyond my ability to fully comprehend. But here's the basic idea behind this. God is three persons. God is three distinct beings. Each one is fully God. And not but and, there's only one God. See, our triune God, as I said, is the perfect community that has and always will be. Three beings perfected and fully alike in all aspects, yet relationally different. The only difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is in how the three relate to one another. They are one. He is three. Now, I'll tell you, I only gave myself five more minutes because I wanted to wrap this up because we do have communion, and I do still want to do that today. I started this uh, question uh, this message with the question, who is God? And I'll tell you, it's not a question that can be easily answered in a few minutes, nor is it a question that can be easily answered in a few months. There are studies and books, whole semesters at, at seminary dedicated to this question. 
But let me list uh, just a few things, a few ideas uh, that might at least be the beginnings of an outline to a response to the question of who is God. Theologians will typically point out when communicating who God is, they'll point to God's characteristics, his attributes. And typically these characteristics fall into one of two categories, God's incommunicable and God's communicable attributes. The attributes of God that are less shared and that are more shared with his creation. Because after all, we are created in the image of God. And so the attributes of God somewhat are evidenced within us. There are some that will be more evident and some that are much less evident, hence the two categories. And so let me just give you a few examples of the, of, of the shared, more shared category, the more communicable attributes of God that are within us as well. There's God's goodness. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Another one is God's love. First John chapter 4, 19 says, we love because he, because God first loved us. Another one is God's mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the Beatitudes reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is just a few examples of his communicable attributes. And then there's God's incommunicable or less shared attributes. And just a few examples of those. God is fully independent. In other words, God does not need us. He is perfect in community as a triune God, and he is perfect in his oneness. God has no need for us, yet, yet we have every need for him. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, it says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Another one, God's immutable or God is unchangeable. God absolutely will respond to different situations differently because God is a relevant God, is a contextual God. But who he is in, in being, who he is in character, in purpose, who he is in promise, that never, ever changes. Psalm chapter 102, verse 25 to 27 reads, Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and you'll change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Another one, God is eternal. No beginning, no end. At the same time, God sees all of time vividly, and he responds in time. Psalm 19 verse 4 reads this, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Psalm chapter 139 verse 7. It asks this question, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And the rest of that chapter, it just answers the question, Nowhere. I'll tell you, this is not an exhaustive list of God's attributes, but it's, it's just a start. And, and the beauty of this incomplete list is this, that it's incomplete. There's so much more to God. And that all of these are perfected in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit.
You know, as Christians during this time of Advent, we wait. Now, during this period between the resurrection and the return, we wait. We wait for Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is distinct and yet fully God. And to help us in this time of waiting, Jesus left behind a helper, the Spirit of God, who is distinct and yet fully God. This sermon series, they all have the same goal, all have the same response, to know better who it is that we are waiting for during this season of Advent. And we're going to consider the second and the third persons of the Trinity and how they relate to the first and to each other, all so that we might better understand who we're waiting for. Better grasp the one who promises us hope, who promises us joy, and who it is that we adore. That's the message for today. Now I want to ask you, if you don't mind, to grab your communion elements. Because uh, in this time between the resurrection and the return of Christ, he left instructions for us to continue a holy ritual that reminds Christians of God's grace. Reminds us that we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. It's an act for all those who call Jesus their Savior to, to remember his sacrifice, to celebrate his resurrection and to anticipate and to wait for his glorious return. So go ahead. I'm going to ask you to grab your communion elements, the bread and the cup. And we're together going to participate in this act of holy remembrance. Because you see the bread is broken, on, represents Christ's body broken on the cross so that ours would not have to be and the cup poured out. It represents Christ's blood poured out on the cross so that ours would not have to be. See, Jesus set you and me free from the bondage of sin by dying in our place. See, and we remember his ultimate sacrifice by, by continuing to practice the sacred act until we are uh, with our resurrected Savior in heaven one day, until Jesus returns. So before we get into the actual act itself, I want to ask that you enter into this time first with prayer. And I, I do this every time, and I'm going to quote him every time. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said and taught that entering into communion without confession makes grace, the grace it provides, cheap. So I'm going to ask you to take a moment now to prepare your heart to come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you humbly. And we ask you to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. To restore our relationship with you. We know that we are your beloved children. And we have received you into our hearts. I have accepted your death as penalty for our sinfulness. And ask that your spirit continue to transform us. As we remember you and the gospel that you brought with you. Amen. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says this. The Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And do this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to ask you now to please take your bread, break, and eat it. Remembrance of our Savior. Continuing on, in verse 25, it reads, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So I'm going to ask you now to please take your cup 
and drink from it in remembrance of our Savior. I want to finish off by reading verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God bless you all.